Well, if you have a Bible, open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. We are beginning our spring sermon series today uh, through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to be here for a few months, actually. The plan is 16 sermons, so 16 weeks worth of Luke. Uh, and if you, uh, just so you know, we, we sold out of the Luke scripture journals that we were, uh, we had for sale the last few weeks, but if you do want one, uh, we can, you can get one on Amazon, just go on there and order it yourself for really cheap, and you can even have it by next Sunday, of course, so uh, you can still get that if you, if you didn't, if you weren't able to get one here, but um, thank you, thank you for being here, and I'm excited about this. We're going to see how uh, Luke tells us that the good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. It's for everyone in this world. But before we dig in, uh, let's pray and let's ask Christ to bless his word today. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that we get to look at this story of who you are. And I pray that you would use it today and for these next couple of months, Lord, that you would use this to truly transform who we are as a church collectively as your people, as individuals, and Lord, as we seek to be faithful witnesses for you in this world, give us grace. Lord, give us much grace even now in this moment and prepare us to receive your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the stories that we typically see on the news, uh, whether you read about it on the internet or you're just watching the nightly news, they're usually they usually only affect a limited population. So for example, you know, if, think of a geographical area. If a hurricane is approaching the Florida coast, well, people in Alaska probably don't care that much about it, but we care a lot, right? Or sometimes news is limited to certain types of people or, or groups of people perhaps. So everyone maybe with a certain physical condition or disease, if a news report comes on about your health, you're, you're tuned in, you're listening. But it's extremely, it's extremely rare that we ever see news that actually affects everyone on earth, right? And if you do, even if you do, it's, it's guaranteed to be bad, right? The only news that ever affects everybody on the planet, it's always bad news. I mean, think about it just a couple of years ago, right? The COVID pandemic, that affected pretty much everyone on planet earth, but it was bad, right? Or if you remember back a few decades ago when that giant asteroid was heading straight towards the earth and Bruce Willis stopped it, remember that? Anybody? It's just bad news, right? I mean, but it affected everybody, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google Armageddon, the movie, the movie Armageddon. All right. Um, so you see what I mean though, right? It, it's news for everyone, but if it's news for everyone, it's going to be bad. But in the first century AD, there was a Gentile medical doctor who decided to make a claim. He made a claim that there was actually good news for every person on the planet. More than that, this news impacts every person. It affects every person who has ever lived, not just in one geographical location, not just a certain type of people, not just in one point in history. Luke is claiming 
in his biography that he wrote about Jesus Christ around the year 60 AD, he's claiming that this news, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ affects everyone. We all have to do something with Jesus. We have to make a decision about who he is. His claims are too great for us not to. He just can't be ignored. This is what we're going to be looking at. For the next few months here at Kernan, we're going to be looking at this gospel according to Luke, which is exactly good news for everyone. So if you do have the scripture journal with you right now, I'll encourage you to open up just there to that first page in Luke 1. I've got some fast facts about Luke I want to share with you. You can just jot these down real quick. Obviously, the author is Luke, of course, self-titled here, but this is a biography about Jesus. Luke was a Gentile medical doctor, and he also traveled uh, with the Apostle Paul. So Luke is a pretty interesting guy, right? He's not a Jew, so he didn't grow up in the Jewish religion, probably had a pagan background at some point, we don't know when, but he came to trust in Jesus as his Savior, and then being and practicing medicine at some point, he said, you know what, I'm going to write an orderly account about all these things that I've uh, heard and interviewed through these witnesses and eyewitnesses and people and Paul, right? And then the date written, you're looking around 60 AD, it's probably the early 60s in the first century Palestine. And the theme, of course, is the gospel for all. So let's dig in. Let's look at verses one through four. This first paragraph uh, in this gospel is really the introduction. So let's see how Luke introduces this whole thing. So beginning in verse one, Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So like I said, Luke is a Gentile, so he comes from the pagan world. He's a medical doctor by, by trade. He, he wants to write this orderly biography of Jesus. And I like how the NIV translation puts it. It says that he investigated these things. Right? So Luke himself kind of did this investigation of, him, of, of who Jesus is, and he spoke to all these eyewitnesses, and he records their accounts. And so he's also, of course, traveling with the Apostle Paul. So you can imagine just all the other great information he's getting from Paul as he's writing this. So the point is, Luke is taking this very seriously. Luke is a well-educated, smart guy who's taking this stuff very seriously, and he's addressing it to a man named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is probably a Roman official. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. So that was a, a title given to Roman officials in the first century. And so he's writing to him, but look at why. Why does Luke say that he's giving him this biography? Verse four again, he says that you may have certainty concerning these things, the things you have been taught, certainty about this. So if you have your journals, I want you to circle or underline that word certainty. At this point in the first century, now it's a couple of decades after Jesus 
ascended back into heaven. So by this point, you know, a lot of people have heard about Jesus. A lot of people, his name, his fame is, is, is starting to, to seep out of Palestine and into the European world, right? But a lot of people by this point, they know that at least there was a, a man a couple of decades ago named Jesus who just completely rocked the Roman province of Palestine to its core. But just knowing historical facts about this Jesus does not, that doesn't mean that you believe his teachings just because you know about him. So Luke is writing and saying, who was this man? Who was this man named Jesus? Why did they crucify him? And are these reports of him raising from the dead? Are these reports true? You see, Luke wants Theophilus and anyone else, including us, who's reading this account to have certainty to have certainty about these things, to be sure about, verse one, the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or as Luke will call it, the good news. The good news that Jesus is the Son of God and has come to save sinners. So can we be certain Can we be certain this is good news for everyone, for all of us? Can you, can you be certain that this is good news for you? Well, after his introduction, this is how Luke begins his quest to give us certainty about these things. We see starting in verse five, this is probably not what you would expect. He begins this quest to give us certainty about the life of Jesus with, interestingly, two birth announcements. Now, these birth announcements are way better than a lot of these gender reveal parties you see in our world today, all right? They're not shooting pink and blue confetti out of cannons or anything like that. There's angels involved, totally trumps all that other stuff, right? All right, here we go, verse five. In the days of Herod, here's how Luke says it. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So Luke begins this story by bringing our attention to a Jewish priest named Zechariah who was serving in the temple. So we're talking Old Testament mindset here, right? In the temple of God. He's married to his wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah was serving under the Old Testament law. And he and Elizabeth loved the Lord. They were good people. They were godly people. They obeyed God's commands. They really loved God. Look at what Luke says about them, verse 6. He says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we find out a little more about this couple, right? They've, they've never been able to have children. And now in a much later season of life, they are an elderly couple. But the inability to have children in the ancient world, of course, brought much heartache emotionally, just like it would today. But back then, it also brought a lot of stress and pain socially and financially. It was a big deal. So why is Luke focusing on this downcast couple? Why is he choosing 
and even mentioning them in his gospel. Continue verse 8. We'll see what he says. He says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I mean, wouldn't you, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're just, you know, performing a religious duty like this, like Zechariah in the temple, and all of a sudden an angel is standing there, of course you're overwhelmed with fear at first, but what does the angel say? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine this? Zechariah and Elizabeth have spent years, probably decades, praying for a child. And for whatever reason, up until this point, the Lord has not granted that request. He has not answered that prayer. And though the text says that they were both righteous before God, I don't want to downplay that. But just, I can imagine how after years and years of praying for one thing and it never happening, don't you think they probably had doubt? Doubt about God's ability, doubt about God's word, perhaps just giving up. And in fact, in the following verses, we don't have time to get into that part of the story today, but in the following verses, you can read ahead and see that Zechariah, he does doubt the angel's word about this. He doesn't want to believe the angel at first. But when this angel appears in the temple, right there standing beside Zechariah, he gives him good news that is rocking their world. They're going to have a son. And not just any son. He's going to be given a special task by God. Look at this. Verse 14. It's not often that your baby gets a job description before he's even born, right? Look at this. And you will have joy, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, John, will be given this special task by God himself to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? What could be so important? Like what could be so big that he would have to spend his whole life in a very special way preparing for someone else? Preparing for for this other person, whoever this is, coming after him. Well, that leads us to the second. That leads us to the second birth announcement, which occurs six months later after this one. So look down at verse 26, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man, so engaged to be married, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So now we see what John's special task will be. God himself is going to come to earth. God himself, I mean, let's, let's let that soak in for a second. God himself is going to come to earth and become one of us. The angel says he is coming to establish his kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. And so these two birth announcements set the tone and the trajectory for the entire book of Luke. Luke says in the intro to Theophilus that he's telling him these things. Why? So that he can have certainty. Certainty about all of this. I think we can have certainty about this too. And so what I want us to see today are two things. Two things I think we can be certain about from Luke chapter 1. First of all, I think we can be certain that number one, God brings new life to impossible situations. God brings new life to impossible situations. Think about it. Before Luke ever records any account of Jesus healing someone or performing a miracle of some kind, what does he do? He shows us how God approaches this downcast elderly couple. And what does he do? He chooses to bring life to a barren place through them to set in motion a story that will change the entire course of human history. You see, here we see life in places where it's not supposed to be. A barren womb and a virgin's womb. In Elizabeth's case, 
God is bringing life to someone who by this point has probably given up has probably given up on it. From a human perspective, this is impossible at her age. This is impossible. And in Mary's case, God is bringing life to someone who, by definition, cannot have children. This is new life in unexpected places. New life where, by any human human imagination, we quickly say, that's not possible. That's not possible. It's actually very fitting, though, that Luke begins his gospel this way because this is exactly, this is exactly what Jesus came to do, to bring new life in unexpected places, to bring new life to seemingly impossible situations. You see, later on in Luke in chapter 19, we see One sentence that summarizes the entire book of Luke, but really also the entire ministry of Jesus. When Jesus says about himself in Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and to save the lost. You see, these two birth narratives in chapter 1 are a foreshadow of the new spiritual birth that Jesus will bring. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus and he he tells him in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this really tripped Nicodemus up. He's like, well, what does it mean to be born again? How, how do you do that? Of course, Jesus is speaking of a spiritual birth. He's speaking of our need for new life, for new birth. Because the reality is, because of our own sin, because of our own choosing, our hearts are barren. Our hearts are empty places where fruit is not being produced that honors God, where life and vitality, spiritual life and vitality is just not there. Because of our sin, you know, God created each one of us, every person on the planet who's ever lived, God created us to love him, to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him, to want to be with him forever. And every person has the same problem, a barren heart, a heart that says, no, I don't think I want that more than anything else. Maybe I want a little bit of that, but ultimately, God, I just want myself. I want to answer to myself. I want to prove myself. I don't want to have to submit to you. I want to submit to me. And so ironically, we try to put ourselves in the place of God. We try to kind of take Jesus off his throne and say, you know, I think I'll sit there. Jesus, you can sit beside me. That'd be great. Sure, come along this journey with me, Lord. But let me handle my life the way I want to. Jesus says, no, that doesn't work. That life, that kind of life, is going to lead to a complete failure. Ultimately, it leads to separation from God. We willingly choose to not want to be with him forever by saying we don't need him. 
Jesus says, no, you need a new life. You need a new heart. You need a new one. He says new birth, new life is only available in him. That's the only way. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except through him. In other words, no one can actually have a relationship with God unless you admit to God that you can't do it, that you can't prove yourself to yourself, to anyone, to him. Jesus says, no, I'm the only way. He says, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Because Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin and paid the penalty of our sin. Because he substituted himself on the cross. Because he rose from the grave. That's the only way we can have new life with God. When we repent of our sin, that means to turn away. When we turn away from our sin and we really put our faith in what Jesus has done and who he is instead of ourselves, that is salvation. That is when new life comes to what otherwise would have been an impossible place, our own hearts. Because Jesus brought new life to an impossible place, his own tomb. I mean, think about that. When Jesus got up, when he got up on that Easter Sunday morning in his own tomb, he sits up, he stands up, and he walks out. He's bringing new life to impossible situations. Are we certain of this? Are we certain this is for everyone? Who might we look at and say, I don't know. I don't think new life is going to come to him. I don't know that God can reach that person. I don't know that God's grace is for her. What kind of person are you thinking that about? What kind of person or group or maybe group of people, right, that, that you've given up on. There's no way those people are going to be saved. There's no way those people can know Jesus. Look at how they live. Look at what they do. What person in your life have you concluded that just doesn't have a chance? They've blown it completely. They don't have a chance. I love the contrast between verse 36 and verse 37 in chapter 1 and what Gabriel says. I especially love the NIV translation here, and I will show the NIV on the screen. Because of the wording, I love how, how it says this. Verse 36, Gabriel is speaking to Mary, and what does he say? He says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said, she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. In other words, Gabriel says, everybody else, everybody is saying, this isn't happening. This cannot happen. The word that everyone else around Elizabeth was speaking was plain and clear about this. This is impossible, they would say. But how does our word stack up against God's? Look at what he says then. The very next sentence, Gabriel says, for no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. If God says it will happen, guess what? It will happen. As one commentator put it, the point here is clear. Salvation must come in a way that only God can accomplish so that we will know that God has done it and so that he might get the glory. 
Why is God working in these mysterious ways? Why is he approaching people who are downcast and burdened? Why is he coming to people who otherwise we would say they have no chance because he wants to prove that it's not us. It's not our power. It's all him. He gets the glory in these situations. So do you believe? Do you believe this spiritual new life is really available for people around you. People who maybe have hurt you in the past and you've had trouble forgiving. People who you just don't like for whatever reason. They're just not your cup of tea. But do you believe spiritual life is really available for them? Do you believe Jesus wants to seek and to save them? You know, there's probably enough people here in a room this size that are thinking that's yourself. Maybe you're not certain that Jesus can save someone like you. You may say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I know I'm sitting in a church today, but I just don't know. I'm not sure if this is really for me. I'm not sure if Jesus really wants me. Because you don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the crowd I've ran with. You just don't know. And can I say to you today that what part of verse 37 do you not see? That with God, all things are possible, including transforming and changing your life? That this good news is for you? You know, sometimes it's easy to see what God has saved us from or what he is saving us out of. And we think a lot you know, about who I used to be and, and who God has made me now. And that's important because God can save anyone out of any situation. He can save you. If you're doubting that today, you can be certain that God wants you. But I think sometimes we overlook or underemphasize what Jesus is saving us to. In other words, our future and what we really belong to. So the second thing we see here is not only, not only can we have certainty that God brings new life to impossible situations, namely us, our own hearts, our own sinfulness. God brings new life to us, but what else? We can be certain that what we're being saved to is going to last forever, that the kingdom we belong to will never end the kingdom of God that he is coming to earth to establish, Luke says, is never going to end. Look at verse 32 and 33 again. The angel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You know, there's a, there's a popular phrase, of course, coined in our society that almost always proves true. All good things must come to an end, right? I mean, how many of us have said that at some point, right? I mean, just thinking, you know, I, I tend to think of the sports world where just great dynasties, you know, when I was a kid, the 1990s, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, I mean, come on. Right, We thought that was never going to end. Like I had all the bull stuff. I had the jersey, I had the locker, I had it all. Right, 
the Bulls dynasty, man, we're never going to end. And then what happened? Michael Jordan retired. And then he came back, right? And then he retired again. And it ended. And then we think of the New England Patriots, don't we? Tom Brady. I mean, we just thought, this guy, like, am I, am I going to live long enough to see the Patriots not win Super Bowls, right? That's what we all started thinking, right? And then what happened? Tom Brady retired. And then he came back, and then he retired again, right? There just seems to be a trend here, right? <laughs> but they don't last forever, do they? All good things must come to an end. Think about your own seasons of life. It's funny, man, when, you, when you're in high school, you think, this is the best, right? Like, you think it's your best days of life when you're in high school, and then you graduate, and that season ends. And then maybe you feel a little void, a little empty, and you go to college, perhaps, and then you think, man, this is the best days of my life. And then you graduate, or you move on, or whatever, and you start adulting, if you know what that is, right? Becoming an adult, paying bills and doing things like that that are responsible, and then you look back and you think, maybe there's a little void in my life. I feel a little empty because that season of life has ended. Perhaps maybe you get married, maybe you have kids, and when your kids are little, you just love seeing them run around and playing, spending time with them, and then they grow up. And you look back and think, I guess all things, all good things really do come to an end. And we quickly realize yeah, nothing lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. But maybe there's something. Is there anything that truly lasts forever? Luke tells us that you, you Christian, you follower of Jesus, you do belong to something that will last forever. The kingdom of God will have no end. And if you think about how you belong to that, <laughs> doesn't that change the way we view our lives now? Shouldn't that change the way in our perspective that we see everything around us? Shouldn't that loosen our grip a little bit on this world and our earthly possessions and our seasons of life and all the things, all the good things that we wish would never end? We start to realize they are temporary and as good as they may be, as great as they may be and as much joy and happiness they may really truly bring us in, in this life, we can loosen our grip on them because we know that God has his grip on us. And that we belong to something greater than we can ever imagine. We belong to more joy and peace and happiness than you could ever fathom. And it never ends. I think that's why Mary was so willing to accept this news and contrast to Zechariah and his response, doubting the angel's words, Mary believed the angel. Why did she do that? I think, I think she accepted this news and she was willing to go through the difficulties and the shame of being pregnant but not married to Joseph in that world, in that ancient world, and the pain of child labor that was before her. She was willing to do these things. Why? Because she knew that she belonged to a forever kingdom. And that's the only thing that really makes life worth living now. There are lots of joys and there are lots of good gifts and good blessings, of course, that the Lord may grant you in this life. But those things will come to an end. Every relationship, every possession you own, 
every title you've been, you've earned, every education you've got, right? It all is going to fall. It's all going to come to an end. But there's one thing. There's one thing, and it is the greatest thing that will last forever. Why? Because with God, nothing is impossible. You see, we can face any trial. We can face any hardship in this world head on. Head on. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be afraid. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have anxieties and fears and doubts occasionally. Of course. That's natural to who we are as humans. But we can still face anything in this world head on. Why? Because we know. Because we know ultimately we're going to live forever. And that everything will be made right. If you have found new life in Christ, then you belong, you belong to this kingdom with no end. You know Right? You know this. We're, we're going to see, listen, we're going to see a lot of physical healings and, and miracles done as we read Luke that he accounts Jesus doing over the next few months. We're going to see these things as we read. Jesus is going to be changing people's lives spiritually and physically. He's going to be doing both because he's God. He can do that. Right? But the physical healings we're going to see and these miracles that we're going to read about are but a foreshadow of what is actually coming. They're just a taste. They're just a taste of what God is really going to do. If, if God's kingdom will never end, if nothing is impossible with God, and he brings new life to unexpected places, to seemingly impossible situations, that includes this world as well, as a whole. That includes this physical earth. This earth in its current condition needs to be reborn, you might say. I love how Paul, who was Luke's, traveling companion. Look what he says in Romans 8, verse 21 and 22 on the screen. You can read this, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, get this, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Don't you wonder if the Apostle Paul and Luke on one of their journeys sharing the gospel around the European world, if they just had this discussion about this theme of birth, of new birth, and they talked about Elizabeth, and they talked about Mary, and they talked about how God is bringing new life to all things. And so Paul says, now we know, we know the whole creation has been groaning since the very beginning. It needs to be reborn. I love how the ESV study Bible says, on the last day when Christ returns, the creation also will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin and will instantly become far more beautiful, productive, and easy to live in than one could ever imagine. Paul continues, look at this, verse 23. It's not just the world. It's not just the physical world that God is going to set right. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Do you feel the groaning in your heart? Do you feel the groaning in your soul for something better, for something to belong to that lasts forever? You want the certainty in your life. Paul says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Or who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope 
for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You may be groaning. You may be crying out for new life to come to your impossible situation right now. But we must fix, we must fix our hope on what is to come. We must fix our hope on eternity, on the kingdom that never ends. That is the only certain hope we have. Jesus is truly making all things new. He makes all things right. Whatever is terrible and sad in this life now will one day be made untrue. All the sad things will come undone. They will unravel and be defeated. What will be left? A kingdom with no end. New life is coming. New life is coming. It's on the way. It's going to last forever because death has been defeated once and for all. New life came to the tomb. It came to the womb and it came to your heart. New life is coming. That's something we can be certain about. So as we begin this journey through Luke, my first question, and really the only question today for you is this. Are you certain about that? Are you certain that new life is yours? Maybe you are a Christian already. Maybe you have given your life to Christ. You've confessed Him as your Savior, but you're struggling to believe you're struggling to have that real certainty just day in and day out as you face life's challenges. Christian, friend, listen, new life is already yours. Dwell on the good news that's for everyone, including yourself. Let it soak into your mind and your heart every day as you study God's word, as you spend time in prayer. Rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe today you're here and you're just not certain where you stand before the Lord. The truth is, you just don't know if you really stand before God represented by Jesus because you've been trying to represent yourself and you haven't accepted His grace and forgiveness for your sin. You have not truly confessed Him as your Savior that you need saving to begin with. Listen, if that's you today, you can be certain. You can be certain that Christ died for you, that He loves you, and that He wants you forever. We can be certain today that this is truly good news for every single one of us.